Well, hello, everybody, and welcome. It is so great to be here with all of you. You are tuned into the Cosmic Connection. Today, we are going to be exploring the nodes and quantum astrology. And this show is really dedicated to helping you explore the beauty and, and order of the cosmos and your connection to it all. And we're here with Rick Levine. It's so great to have you here, Rick. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Amanda Poole Walsh. And Let's dive in, Rick. What are we talking about? Nodes and quantum astrology. I know quantum astrology is close to your heart, and it's probably what you would say most accurately what you practice. Is that true? No, I think most accurately, I practice compassion (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, and kindness. Um, Yeah, quantum astrology, I think as close as anything, kind of is a broad stroke that that covers how I orient myself to astrology. It does not in, uh, entail or 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 require the use of any one technique. Quantum astrology is really a way of framing not only astrology but our view of the cosmos. All right. So why the nodes? Let's talk. Maybe we can start with the nodes. No, let's get to the nodes. Well, okay. So. The nodes are related to this because um, nodes are no things. There, there's nothing there. Um, a node, the word node is a Latin word that actually means not, K-N-O-T. And I remember Buckminster Fuller used to, on his in his stage demonstrations, would um, would would take a twenty or thirty foot long piece of rope, and this rope had maybe two to three foot sections of different ropes that were tied together. So there was maybe a two or three foot section of maybe a a yellow nylon polyurethane that looked like a ski toe rope maybe. And then there was a two or three foot section of a thick um, manila rope. And then there was a section of a white cotton rope. And, and there were all these different colored um, from nylon to sisal to manila to all these different materials of all different colors. And he would have two people stand on opposite ends of the stage, each holding one end of this rope. And he would tie an overhand knot in the note, in, in the note, in the, in the rope. And he would ask the audience to describe it. And then he would work the knot down the rope and he would ask the audience to describe it. And he'd work it down the rope and work it so that the knot was a yellow knot followed by a um, brownish knot followed by a white knot of different materials. But there was something that was the same as it went from one end to the other. And that was the shape of the knot. So a node is a knot, and it turns out that its relationship with quantum physics is extremely important because just like there is no physical planet to observe when we look at the nodes, and when we say nodes, we normally mean the nodes of the moon, but every planet has nodes, and, and, and the nodes are defined uh, as following. 
when you have two things that are going around a center and they're and they're making a cycle or orbits around a center where those two orbits intersect whether or not there's a planet or a, or something at that point where the two orbits intersect defines the north and south node the nodes are the points at which um, at which orbits intersect. So when we refer to the nodes, typically, we mean the nodes of the moon. Although, as I said earlier, Jupiter has a north node and south node, and Mercury has a north node and south node. And so just let's look at the moon. The moon is going around the Earth, and its orbit is on different planes. It's sometimes high, and then it's sometimes more even, and then sometimes it's flipped so that it's actually the plane of its orbit is wobbling, according to a very specific mathematics. Meanwhile, the Earth is going around the sun, and the Earth going around the sun, that plane is actually what we call the ecliptic. That's the plane in which we measure all the planets going around the sun. Sometimes they go slightly north of the ecliptic, and north is simply defined by the Earth spinning around clockwise, and that then becomes the North Pole. And so that's just how we orient to the whole thing. But we have these planets that are going around, and sometimes they're exactly on the exact same plane as the Earth and the Sun on the ecliptic. And sometimes they go a little bit further to the north, and sometimes they go a little bit further to the south. And in fact, if their orbits are, are at an angle, one complete trip around the Sun will have it go further to the north and then cross the ecliptic and then go further to the south. So the Moon does that every month, once a month. The moon goes from what we call northernmost declination, which is how many degrees it is above the ecliptic, to southernmost declination. There are times when the north and south declination are much greater than they are at other times, depending upon how much that orbit is, is tilted. So the nodes of the moon, what we refer to as the nodes, is basically where the orbit of the moon going around the earth and the earth going around the sun. It's where those two orbits intersect, where two planes intersect, they create a straight line, basic rule of geometry. Two planes intersect in a straight line and the straight line that is created by the intersection of the orbit of the moon around the earth and the orbit of the earth around the sun that straight line is defined by the north node, which is where the moon would cut through the ecliptic coming toward the north up, and the south node, 180 degrees opposite where it goes down below. Now, the thing though is that when we look for where the nodes are, there's no thing there. Hindu astrologers, Vedic astrology, practitioners of Jyotish, all the same thing, they remind us that the nodes are not less important than the planets we see. They refer to the nodes as shadow planets. <laughs> Just because you can't see it, they say, doesn't make it less important. 
in the West, we've diminished the nodes up until the um, creation of a branch of astrology called evolutionary astrology, which has been part of repositioning the, the nodes, and again, I mean in particular the nodes of the moon, um, elevating them into a very high level of importance. Um, and, um, and we'll get there in interpretation at, at, the, at the end. But coming back to what this has to do with quantum astrology um, or quantum physics uh, is, is this. Okay, we need to step back a little bit and understand that our view of the cosmos, of the universe, changed dramatically in the very end of the 19th century through the beginning of the 20th century, about 100 years ago, as we developed technology that allowed us to peer into the microscopic realms of the atom. Until that point in time, we believed that we had laws that governed the interaction of physical objects, which we can refer to as Newtonian mechanics, because it was based upon the codification breakthroughs and mathematics of Isaac Newton, who incidentally once said, I see so far because I stand on the shoulders of giants. One of the main biographies of Isaac Newton is, is titled On the Shoulders of Giants. And the only reason why I'm mentioning that is that one of the giants upon whom Isaac Newton stood, uh, upon whose shoulders Isaac Newton stood, was astrologer Johannes Kepler. And so, I mean, there are people who would say, yeah, the main people who he whose shoulders he stood upon were Galileo, Descartes, and, and Kepler, just as, you know, three, three main uh, contributors to his work. But Isaac Newton developed laws of physical interactions in the universe that involved what we call laws of gravity, laws of motion, laws of acceleration. And it's Isaac Newton's formulas that NASA uses to land a projectile on an asteroid a billion miles away after the projectile was set off in a direction different than the asteroid so it could get close enough to another planet that it could fall into its gravity, speed itself up, and then use that momentum to project it even faster in another direction. It sounds crazy, but we can actually use those mathematics to land a projectile two billion miles away to Jupiter or to uh, Pluto, and have it come close enough that we can actually um, go into the gravitational orbit, or to land on a, on, a, on a an asteroid the size of a football field. Isaac Newton's work is phenomenal, and yet, as Isaac Newton's work became understood and known, astrology became academically shunted aside because of one important concept in Newton's work, which is called the inverse law of gravity, the, 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 the law of inverse proportion. And what that means is this. It means that as something gets farther away from something else, its effect on the other body is diminished, but it's not diminished linearly 
meaning that if it's five times away, it's five times less you know, uh, influential. If it's a hundred times away, it's a hundred times less influential. Instead, Isaac Newton's mathematics showed clearly that the inverse law showed that gravity deattenuates at the inverse square of the distance. Now, for those of you who are mathematically impaired, bear with me here again a second, because something squared is that number times itself. So two squared is four which means that if something is twice as far away, it's four times less influential. If something is a hundred times, if something is a hundred times farther away, a hundred times a hundred is 10,000, which means that if something's a hundred times farther away than something else, it's one ten thousandth of the amount of, of, of influence. Now, as an astrologer, what this means is that Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, that these planets are basically, you know, they have no gravitational attraction or very little. And it's been said um, by people trying to disprove astrology that the gravitational pull on the doctor in the, um, the, in the delivery room has more influence on the child than, um, than, than Pluto or than Saturn or Mars. Well, there are other mathematics there that make that more complicated, but let's just set that aside for a moment. Because in the late 20, in the late 19th century, when we developed tools, in particular micro microscopes, and the electron microscope really was the thing that, that really shifted everything, it gave us the ability to, to delve into, to visually see what was inside of an atom. And as we began looking at what was inside of an atom, it became apparent that what we called subatomic particles, meaning electrons, protons, and neutrons, that we imagined were like little tiny microscopic billiard balls. In fact, the image that most of us have of an atom is a nucleus, which has a bunch of neutrons packed together with electrons that are circling it in orbits kind of like planets circling the sun, and, but on a very, 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 very tiny scale. Well, as these physicists in the early 20th century began looking at these subatomic particles, they discovered much to their horror that they were not following the laws of Newton's mechanics. Oh my God. I mean, this was like, um, we had people um, like, like Werner Heisenberg wandering around the parks in Germany um, at night in despair, not being able to sleep, basically saying, you know, can God be this chaotic to have created a universe that doesn't even follow his own laws? They were, they were flabbergasted. They were stymied. They were like, what is going on here? And from these early experiments, physicists really under the intellectual leadership of Niels Bohr, a uh, Danish um, uh, scientist, uh, physicist, um, came up with this concept called quantum physics, which in the words of Niels Bohr, Quantum physics is not stranger than you think. 
it's stranger than you can think that quantum physics basically had to deal with the fact that even these subatomic particles were, were not really particles. You see, in 1905, Einstein demonstrated mathematically, and it was then verified physically, that light um, it travels, that, that light can be measured as a packet of energy. We call it a photon. A photon is a, is a particle of light. And, and, and yet the problem is that scientists have, um, through what's called the double slit experiment, you can go to YouTube, Google double slit, actually Google double slit um, Fred Allen Wolf who has this wonderful three or four minute animated video that shows that when you shoot electrons from a, an electron gun to a wall, that those electrons are like particles going to the wall and they make patterns that are like you'd expect particles to make that are densest in the middle and then go out. But if you put two slits in a, in, in, in a wall and allow the particles to go through them, the patterns they make on the wall on the other side are not the patterns that a particle would make, they're patterns that waves would make. Because as we know, when waves interfere with waves, there's a very different mathematics involved than particles. And so what the physicists had, had to grapple with was the fact that when we measured, when we looked at a subatomic event, we saw a particle. However, when we weren't looking at it, it was traveling as a wave. Physicists call this the particle wave duality. It's not as complicated as, 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 as we think. Um, although um, I, I was at a party a number of years ago for a very, very well-known um, physicist's 80th birthday, and at one point, and there were several other very well-known published physicists there. And at one point, he drags me over. He goes to a group of these people who I knew by name. And he goes, tell them about the particle wave thing. And I go, what are you, what are you, what are you kidding me? He goes, no, 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 tell them. You know what I mean. I go, yeah, but he goes, just tell them. And my thing is, is that, that scientists rack their heads over how can something travel like a wave when you look at it for a moment it becomes a particle but then it goes back to traveling like a wave and and it, and it, and how can it be both it's the act of visualizing it that takes what they call the quantum wave function and pops it in a moment into a particle where we can measure it we can see it we can weigh it we can determine it's a particle then as soon as we look away it's going on its way as a wave again W-T-F. I mean, it made people crazy. Well, it's really not that complicated. And, and where quantum astrology comes into this is from what's called um, the, the um, uh, it, there's an ancient tradition that was written that, was, that comes from Hermes Trismegistus. It's called the Emerald Tablets. And the Emerald Tablets of which we have um, translated and are available, Google it. Um, the first of the statements on the Emerald Tablets um, is something that many of us have heard most astrologers recite. 
and they recite it in a partial form. And what we say, and it's even the title of, um, of, of a book by Alan Oaken, and it's As Above, So Below. This comes from an old Egyptian teaching, allegedly Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes, which is Greek for Mercury, Latin, uh, Trismegistus, try three times, magi, magician great. So it's really Hermes the three times great is what Hermes Trismegistus means. And Hermes Trismegistus wrote, as above, so below. The within of things is as the without of things. And it's that second part that most people don't pay any attention to or don't even know that's there. As above, so below, people think, oh, as above, so below, the above makes the below happen. It's the planets up there making us do what we do. No, the within of things is as the without of things. It turns out that consciousness is a node, <laughs> is an interference pattern from these very, very, very low frequency um, cosmic waves and these very, very, very high frequency subatomic particle waves that somehow we ride this point and we have awareness of both the smaller and the larger. But in a way, we are surfers on some sort of wave of consciousness. Let's drop that. That's an, a whole poetic dive that we could go down. But I want to stay on track here because we're talking about nodes. So it turns out that Werner Heisenberg was granted the Nobel Prize for his mathematical work. I think it's called Matrix Mathematics. And in it, he basically developed a mathematics that showed very, very clearly that at any given moment, there is, we're back to this word inverse proportion, there's an inverse relationship to what we can know about the particleness versus the waveness of a what we would call a subatomic particle, even though it's only a particle when we go to measure it, otherwise it's a wave. We still call it a subatomic particle because that's when we measure it. And what Heisenberg said um, in English, he said, well, he wrote it in German, but he wrote it in a German that was mathematically um, nearly indecipherable, but translated into English and then humanized. What he said was that at any given moment, the more we know about the particleness of this subatomic event, the less we know about its waveness. In other words, the more, the more we know about where something is, the less we know about where it's going. That's the English, simplistic English version of it. When it comes to electrons, photons, um, uh, subatomic particles, the more we know about their trajectory, the less we know about where it is at any given moment. <laughs> because we know it's waveform, but we don't know where it is. And in fact, and this is a bit of a mind boggler, a hundred years into subatomic analysis, no one has ever seen an electron. You know what they see? They see, I'm not making this up, they see clouds of electron possibilities. 
which is why quantum physics has introduced this whole idea of probability. All of a sudden, in the Newtonian world, if billiard ball A hits billiard ball B, and billiard ball A is spinning this way, and its velocity is so much, and it hits billiard ball B at a certain angle, we can predict where billiard ball B will, where it will go, and when it will stop, with absolute determinism. In fact, Descartes, who was one of the shoulders upon whom Isaac Newton stood, said, we're on to this. With enough formulas, we'll be able to know everything about everything, which turned out to be as untrue as anyone could have possibly imagined. Because quantum physics says there's this crazy thing called indeterminism. And in quantum physics, indeterminism is, is, is a big deal. And for those of you who uh, um, know about uh, uh, Schrodinger, Edwin Schrodinger and Schrodinger's cat, there's this whole, they did thought experiments because you couldn't actually bump these subatomic particles around and measure them. They did these thought experiments to see how this stuff worked. And Schrodinger's famous experiment ended up in what we now call Schrodinger's cat that had to do with the cat being possibly dead and possibly alive after this radioactive emission. And we would say, well, there's a 50-50 chance of the cat being dead or the cat being alive. And Schrodinger basically said, no, in quantum physics, the only way to state the scientific truth is the cat is neither dead nor alive until you look at it. Then it retroactively becomes dead or alive. Now, I know this is crazy, but we're back to Niels Bohr saying quantum physics isn't crazier than you think. It's crazier than you can think. In fact, I love the story of uh, a bunch of physics, physics students, graduate students, um, came out to um, Niels, Niels Bohr's home on the outskirts of Copenhagen to deliver some papers. And they walked up to his door. And I think there were three or four of them. And, um, and they knocked on his door. And as they knocked on his door, they noticed that there was a horseshoe nailed above his door. And Niels Bohr comes to the door and they give him his papers and they go, Herr Professor, here are the papers, blah, 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 blah. Oh, thank you very much. And one of them says, Professor, we couldn't help but notice that you have a horseshoe nailed to the top of your door. I mean, you're, you're arguably the greatest physicist in the world. Uh, you can't possibly believe in the superstition that a horseshoe brings you luck. And Niels Bohr said, of course I don't. But they say you don't have to believe in it for it to work. <sighs> Quantum physics is not stranger than you think. It's stranger than you can think. All right. So where does this go? What this goes back to the particle wave duality is our planet's particles are waves. <sighs> well, you know, I have my ephemeris here that says I can look and see where these particles are. Oh, they're, they're, they're big particles. I call them BFPs, <laughs> big <fucking> particles. <laughs> and these BFPs, whether they be the moon or Jupiter or Saturn, they're particles, but they're incredibly large. But when we look in the sky, we see that particle. It's inarguably a lump in space, but it's not a tiny microscopic particle. It's a macroscopic cosmic particle, and yet Jupiter, the moon, 
Pluto, every rock out there is a particle in space. And so our planet's particles or waves. Well, when we do a chart, what do we do? We map nine or 10 or 12 or 15 particles in a wheel and we go, I was born with Saturn at 14 degrees of Scorpio, um, conjuncting my ascendant rising. The particle of Saturn was located on the map right there. It's a particle. Well, when you're not looking at a planet, it's doing fine traveling as a wave. The moon is not just conjunct Mars in Aries right now, as it really is. The moon is also a wave form that cycles at nearly 13 cycles per year. Saturn cycles at three cycles per century. Pluto cycles at four cycles a millennium, 240 some odd years to go around once. We look at it through a telescope and we see it's there, but when we're not looking at it, it's propagating as a waveform. So the point is that part of why I use the word quantum astrology is to move us out of this deterministic cause-effect relationship that our ancestor astrologers would say that when Mars conjuncted Saturn in your natal chart, you will get a fever and possibly break a bone. These are deterministic um, mechanistic based upon billiard balls intersecting with billiard balls. When the fact of the matter is that Mars is cycling around, it's a waveform humming in your chart at its own musical hum, but very, very low frequency compared to the music we can hear with our ears. And yet it's making a hum and all the planets are making hums and these waves are intersecting. And when they intersect, they actually can create their own ripples. And here's where we come to nodes. All right, imagine you're standing at the edge of a very, very still pond. I call this pond quantum pond. You're standing at the very, very edge of the pond and it's a still day, there's absolutely no movement. And you have a pocket full of pebbles. I have a piece of lapis, that'll do fine. And although I would not do this with my lapis, you take it and you toss it into the pond and we all know what happens. It goes kerplunk, and then ripples begin to spread out. And as those ripples spread out, it looks like the water's moving away from the center where the, where, where the event was. But it's not. Energy is moving outward, and the water is just moving up and down. If you put a fisherman's float, a bobber, or a piece of styrofoam plastic, don't do that. Um, on you know, in the water, you put the, you threw the rock or the or, or the lapis or whatever, and and those ripples started going out. As the ripples went out, the the float would just go up and down over those ripples, unless those ripples were strong enough that they were making a crest. In which case, you'd be a surfer. You'd catch the wave. But you can lay on a surfboard and just go like that float up and down with the waves. Now, what the hell does this have to do with nodes in astrology? It's very simple. If I take two pieces, boom, 
and throw them both into the pond, what happens is that those waves continue to ripple out and where they crisscross, they make points that even though the energy is moving outward and the waves will continue to ripple outward, the point at which the waves cross do not move. They're called standing points. Actually, a physicist would call those points nodes. A node is the point at which two waves intersect. And this is actually the basis of what's called integrated circuit analysis, which is what a radio engineer would use to do, whether they were making computers or, or radios, anything that's sending and receiving electromagnetic waves, the, the length of the antennas and the, and the receiving mechanisms, the capacitors that tune are all based on harmonics of the, of the nodes, of the points that are created that are the, that are the points that don't move. You can look at, back at the pond and the ripples moving outward and those points that don't move actually do something else. And that is they send out their own waves as if a rock was dropped at that point. We call those interference patterns. That's the word we, we, we use. Now, let me back up a moment and say this. Just like the nodes have nothing there, the fact of the matter is this lapis has nothing there. I dropped it on my desk. There's no thing there. There are no things in the universe. The illusion of what we see as solidity is basically nodes that are created when high frequency, and when I say high frequency, I'm not talking about A above middle C. I'm not talking about the A above that at 880 cycles a second. I'm talking about waves at hundreds of trillions of cycles a second. We can't hear them. We can't even imagine what a waveform at a trillion cycles a second is. However, we can see green at some 450 trillion cycles a second. And if it's higher frequency than that, well, it turns into violet. <laughs> or lower frequency than that, it turns into red. The universe consists of no things. It's all vibration. And the illusion of things that are solid are the result of nodes because nodes are where high frequency waves or any waves intersect with one another. Now let's come back to the moon. So we know that the moon is not really there. Okay, it's there. I mean, Albert Einstein said, reality is an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not being stupid. You know, I would not run high speed into a wall saying it's not really there. Although I imagine that there is some highly realized consciousness somewhere that might be able to do that not within my bag of tricks. I have other tricks. The thing though is that this whole idea of reality being created by the intersection of vibrations is really the basis for the meaning of the nodes. All planets have nodes. 
Um, actually, Mark Jones is just putting the finishing touches on, I don't think it's published yet, on a book on all the planetary nodes. Um, almost any any decent astrology program will not only calculate the moon's nodes, which we all, most of us all put in a chart and use, but the fact of the matter is that you can actually put in a horoscope the nodes of any planet because every planet's orbit intersects the orbit of the Earth going around the sun. So the moon is the loudest, closest thing to the Earth, and the sun is the central filament, if you will. Um, I don't remember whether we said this here or somewhere else. Maybe it was here last, a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, if you speed up the motion of the planets, the, 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 the pla we think of the planets like that, that atom, the planets going around the sun in different orbits, depending about how far from the center they are. But the fact is that the sun itself in the center is actually moving at a tremendous speed in its own rhythm around the center of this little cluster of stars, which as a whole moving around is moving around the center of the galaxy located roughly at 27 degrees of Sagittarius. What that means is that the sun if you speed it up, becomes almost like a central filament with the planets looking like coils going around it. And so the planets almost become like waves that are like in a Tesla um, coil that are, that are like transformers stepping down the, 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 um, frequency, the frequencies of the sun. So what we have with the north and south nodes of the moon, we have the point at which the apparent source of light, the sun, the objective reality, and the primary reflector of subjective reality, the moon, where those two lumps of, of rock, those two ripples in the pond, where their waves intersect, that creates a point that actually maybe the most significant point in the chart, but you couldn't really say that because if you took away the sun and the moon, there wouldn't be a node, you know, because the, the nodes are a result of the orbits of the earth around the sun and the moon around the earth. But the point at which the sun and the moon come together seems to be the beginning of the manifestation of what Hindus would call Maya. Maya in the Hindu teaching is the veil of illusion that covers absolute or true reality. What is absolute or true reality? It's that there are no things out there. Nothing exists. The universe exists from packets of energy that create waves that intersect with each other, that create persistence and illusion of solidity. So the nodes really is the source of Maya. It's the source of the whole show. The whole damn thing is basically built upon this point that begins the rippling of everything outward. Now, we look at the meanings in, in textbooks and we look at, at, at the nodes in order to interpret what they are in someone's chart. And we come up with the best languaging we can. We say it's something to do with the soul 
or the soul's purpose. We say that that the the north node is the trajectory of what the soul is doing in this incarnation as it comes into physical form. It was a wave. Boom, physical form. It pops into reality by by that quantum um, leap of of um, of what Fred Allen Wolf calls uh, the popping of the quantum wave function. In other words, you have these infinite possibilities of the quantum waves, and all of a sudden, boom! There's an event. Three forty one a.m. January fifth, nineteen forty one. Pop. There's, there's a point at which we particularize the waves. At that moment, the sun and the moon are rippling in such a way that their orbits would, ex- would, 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 would intercept at a certain point. And that point actually has two points because it's a line. And the point at which it would be coming above the celestial equator, actually the ecliptic, um, is the north node, which we say is the direction that the soul is heading. We say that's the, that's the purpose of this incarnation. It may have nothing to do with your daily job or your physical issues or your relationships or your family of origin. It's more esoteric than that. It has something to do with what the purpose of the lessons that you're learning during this lifetime are that incorporate into this larger concept of soul. The south node, because the nodal axis is considered to be directional, the south node is tied to the past. And I really should say, I have to say, the illusion of the past. Because the mystical teachings from all religions, and certainly the teachings from Buddhism more so than other philosophies, teach that, that the past and the future are constructs that we create that without a body, that everything that ever existed and everything that ever will exist, exists now. We create this illusion of causality because that's what the ego needs to survive. The south node becomes the where we're coming from. The north node becomes the where we're going to. Now, there's a wonderful and delicious lesson tied up in this um, that there are certain things that we can look cross-culturally and they make us realize something very important. Um, for example, um, uh, in, in, in the West, um, in, in Eastern Europe and Italy, Greece in particular, garlic is used to keep the evil spirits away. I mean, it's, I'm not making this up, but garlic, I mean, even in the vampire movies, you know, you, you know, you got a Bible across and a piece of garlic. The garlic basically is, is, is something that, that, that wards off evil spirits. It's, uh, it's an old, I'm going to use this word, superstition. What's interesting is that in the Eastern philosophies, in the Buddhist sutras, it basically cautions one who's on a path of spiritual development not to eat garlic because the disincarnate spirit guides don't like the smell of garlic and you don't want to keep them away. Hmm. Do you, do you realize how profound this is? Yes. 
You have a whole culture that says, don't eat this stuff because if I eat it, all of a sudden, then all these invisible realms of spirits that are here to help me are going to basically be kept at bay. And then there's this other culture that's built upon Catholicism, which is built upon the illusion that the material world is all that is, and everything that's not material is in the realm of divine proportion and is only for the hereafter, not for the here and now. And therefore, everything that is non-physical is frightening. Keep it away. But it's this, but 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 all of a sudden, what it does is it makes you realize there must be something to this because it fits with both cultures. Are you with me here? All right. So now in the West, we teach that the North Node is really what we should be working toward. It's the, you know, it's the purpose of the soul. And we and 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 there's and a lot of people simplify nodal teachings into this. North node good, south node bad. South node, I've been there, done that. Um, if Freud talked about infantile regression, it's under pressure. We go back to the past and we do what we did before. We make something great that wasn't ever great, but in our mind it was, so we go back to our awful childhood because it seems like it was better than what's going on now. That's going back to the south node. The south node is, is our individual past. It's our cultural past. It's our genetic past. It's the soul's past through past lives. And in a way, it's where we are adept. It's where we're all, we've done it. So we don't have to do it again. The trap is, gee, that's so easy under pressure. I'll just do it again. Whereas we teach, no, 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 no. You got to keep your eyes on the North Node. That's where you're going, not back to what you've done. In Vedic astrology, the teaching is the nodes are not good. The North Node is not good, but the South Node is even worse. But you see, it's framed differently. And why? It's because the nodes are traps, because they have us believing that any of this is real and that we should be going anywhere or accumulating anything. When that's all Maya, that's illusion. The nodes are basically traps that have us believing that we have to be going somewhere. Uh, Trungpa Chogyam Rinpoche wrote a book called um, um, some, Something Spiritual Materialism, Breaking Through Spiritual Materialism. That's not quite the right name of the, the book, um, but it's close to that. And the idea is that when we're on spiritual paths, we all think we have somewhere to get to. Where are you? And what have you done? And where are you going? Oh, you've done this and that, but you've never done that. Okay, well, this is what, you know, it's this kind of trajectory of the soul having to go toward the North Node and get there. And um, and uh, uh, Jogyam, uh, Trungpa Jogyam Rinpoche basically says, that's just not the way it works. There is no trajectory. It's all illusion, albeit a very persistent one. So the, the thing about, quantum astrology and the nodes has one other piece to it that is hugely important. Um, I gave a lecture on this. I, I attended a conference in India, oh, maybe it was like three years ago, and there were like, I don't know, maybe 50 lecturers, but it was like a TED conference. Everyone had, had um, a half an hour. Didn't matter who you were, you, you got on stage, you had a half an hour, that was it. 
And in my half hour lecture, my title of my lecture was A Quantum Perspective on Fate versus Free Will or Fate and Free Will. Now I'm in India talking about fate and free will in India. It's so brave. <laughs> well, I was awarded the Astrologer of the Year for my, um, by the sponsoring school of this conference for this talk. I had, I had um, these old wise Vedic astrologers who came up to me, one in particular, um, he, he had to have been 80 years old. He said, I've been contemplating fate versus free will for every day of my life for the past 20 years. And in a half an hour, you answered my question. Thank wow. you. Wow. That's amazing. And I'm going to do it right now in five minutes. All right. <laughs> because we've done the work to get up to it. Mm -hmm. We've done the work of understanding that, the universe consists of waveforms, but when we visualize them, we particularize them, whether it's at the subatomic level, but because the within of things is as the without of things, quantum astrology is simply an extension of what we know to be true at the microcosmic level, and yet somehow we're afraid to acknowledge it might be true at the macrocosmic level. And so the particle wave duality that exists in Heisenberg's uncertainty theorem, which is what he won the Nobel Prize for, which says the more you know about the more you know about particle, the less you know about wave, the more you know about wave, the less you know about particle in this instant. The way he says it is the more you know about momentum, the less you know about location in this instant and vice versa. So in other words, particle and wave cannot be known at the same time. Now, um, did I have you do that, right, that, that whole right brain, left brain thing with, yeah. with the, you, you, you take your foot and you make a little circle and then you make the. Not on, not with our friends. All right, very, very simple. Everyone, everyone can do this. So you take your right foot and you move it around, you, you lift it up about, about maybe two or three inches off the ground. So it's just like as if it was on the ground, but off the ground. And then you begin to make circles with your right foot, like from your knee, um, and you make them in the direction of the clock. You remember those things that we used to use that had hands that went around to show the time of day? Well, if you can remember what movement, what direction those hands went in, that's called clockwise. And so we're making clockwise circles of our foot around uh, on, uh, just above the ground. And then we take our right hand and we draw a big number six in the air and the foot changes directions. Oh, yes. Because our right brain and left brain, which are like the moon and the sun, which is like yang and yin, which is like particle and wave, which is like masculine, feminine, yin and yang, however you want to do it, we can't have both dominant at the same time. That's what's going on there, is that, is that our brain has this thing that goes across the two hemispheres called the corpus callosum. And one of the most brilliant ideas that I ever got, I got from this old guy who get old guy, he had to have been 75 or 80. God, I'm almost that old. Um, and he talked about how the corpus callosum um, was the connection 
between the right brain and left brain, and that astrology is neither right brain nor left brain oriented. It's neither scientific nor an art form. It's actually the corpus callosum. Astrology connects the right and it connects space and time. It connects the two ways of particle and wave. So here's the punchline to the half hour lecture with the five minute, maybe seven minute lead up that I just got to. And it's very simply this. Fate is particle. Free will is wave. What that means is that at any given moment, we can know about fate or free will, just like particle or wave, but we can't know both at once. It further means that at any given moment, the more we know about fate, the less we know about free will. At any given moment, the more free will we are exercising, the less fate has its control over us. Now, the problem is, is that there are limits to both ends of those spectrum, and it's not an either or one time only thing. It flips back and forth quite regularly through our day, through our lives. There are times in our lives where anything we think we can manifest, and there are other times in our life where everything seems faded and it doesn't matter how we exercise our free will, nothing happens. So this idea of particle and wave is fate and free will. When we look at a chart, we're looking at particles. And when most astrologers give readings, they're making predictions that are based upon Newtonian billiard ball mechanical interactions, cause and effect relationships between transiting Saturn, conjuncting or squaring your natal sun, boom. There's the prediction. That's what happens when these two particles collide. From a quantum astrological perspective, one would want to stand back and look at the waveform and realize that Saturn's on this 30-year, 29-and-a-half-year cycle, and that it conjuncts and, and squares and opposes and conjuncts and squares and opposes and squares again and again and again. And what happened when Saturn last conjuncted, squared, or opposed this particular planet. And again, prior to that, and prior to that, and prior to that, and all of a sudden we realize that when we look at astrology from a faded kind of pulling everything out and only looking at the particles in a given moment of time, we're missing this whole field um, of what Lynn McTaggart called the field, this whole idea of this, this universal quantum field in which we are all part of, in which everything is connected to everything, in which anything is knowable by anyone at any point in time. And, and so that's where quantum astrology comes from. And its relationship to the nodes is very simply that the nodes are just as important as the illusion of anything physical. And in fact, maybe even more important because the nodes are where the magic happen. Knots or nodes is where the universe ties itself up into knots or lumps. In fact, even when we have a growth or something in our body, um, the oncologist will refer to it as a node because a node is a blockage. And without blockages of energy, then physical reality doesn't, doesn't become physical. Physical reality is when two things interact and there's some sort of resistance created by the interaction of two waveforms that impede the wave, almost like a dam on a river, that we notice then the power when we dam it up. So I'm not saying that there isn't a purpose 
to creating resistance or dams. I'm just saying that's where nodes come from. That's why they work. And that's why they're so important. <laughs> that is the best description of the nodes I have ever heard. Well, there's no one else. There's no one else in the world who will give you that description unless they heard it from me and memorized it. <laughs> I mean, the, the, so visual, yeah. the visual of the lake is so helpful and and understanding why those points would be as important and or maybe more important than the quote unquote particles in the chart. Mm -hmm. That's just I've, I've never heard it that way. That is. Brilliant. Really, thank you. It, it's we won't we won't forget that. It's like anyone who's experienced the nodes, you know, the the interpretations of the nodes and worked with the nodes. You you know it's important because you've experienced oh, yeah. it in your life. Yeah, but why? and, and everything and why? everything that I'm saying really doesn't take anything away from any of those teachings. It just gives it a framework yes. of understanding. Oh my God, that's why. That's why. That's why it, it yeah. actually explains it even more, which is incredible. I don't know, maybe I missed this, but did you ever talk about the Isaac Newton's law of inverse proportion? You know, so if it's further away, it has less impact. Why that's not necessarily true? Because in quantum physics, we now know that um, that there's this thing that that that's called the 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 word is is used as non-locality, and um, again, this has been the cause of at least two uh, Nobel Prizes in physics. But the idea of non-locality says that two events that are disassociated in space actually have a quantum interaction that's because of something that quantum physicists call entanglement. It's basically, if you and I have a conversation and then we go apart 20 years later on opposite sides of the planet. Something can happen that ties the two of us together that we might not know about, but that our energy fields have been entangled. Quantum physics basically has this concept, um, this guy named Aspect, having nothing to do, I mean, that was his last name. Um, a Swiss guy won the Nobel Prize, I think sometime in the late 80s for demonstrating that there's this thing called quantum spin. And basically, if you're looking at two electrons and you look at one and it's spinning this way, then you know the other one's spinning the other way. Well, you can take these two electrons and separate them infinitely far apart. And when you spin one, the other one knows and is spinning the other way as if they were right next to each other. And the communication does not happen at the speed of light. It happens instantaneously. Einstein was wrong. There's no question about this. That's mm -hmm. something that it's often been called tachyons. I mean, there are different theoretical words, but something actually does move fast. The speed of light is not a limit. It may be a limit for the physicality that we know that we live within in this dimension. But, um, but the, the reason why um, Newton's laws of the inverse proportion are not valid. They are valid for the physicality of gravity, but they do not cover the full interaction 
between object A and object B, they do not need to be close to each other to have to have uh, to have action. And anyone who says, "How can something so far away have you know have uh, um, importance or cause a reaction here on Earth?" I say, you know, um, we launched this this satellite out toward Neptune that was the size of a very large beach ball, and several years later, it reached Neptune. And it took photographs of Neptune that the following day after they were received on Earth appeared on the covers of millions of magazines, Time magazine. I remember the cover, ran the cover and it just said Neptune, you know, in their iconic way that they do covers. It just said Neptune with a picture of that planet. Now, one cannot say that something so far away, so small cannot have impact of events here on Earth. Now, someone says, oh, yeah, well, it's technology. We made it. Well, yeah, but all technology that we make in some ways is mimicking some natural technology that's already been available, whether we know it or not. And so the fact that we made this device and sent these radio waves, who the hell cares? It's still part of nature. And so this whole idea of the inverse proportion just doesn't cut it in the quantum world. It's, it, it's archaic. It's Newtonian rather than quantum. So, Rick, how does this quantum perspective impact the way that you actually live your life? Like, how, how do you integrate that into the way that you see the world, that you see your role in the world? I'm just really curious. Well, I, I, I know it does on a very deep and profound level, um, but I think it's something that one still you know, if all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and at the same moment my tea kettle goes off and the phone rings, I'm not thinking about quantum anything. I'm thinking about, oh, shit, I got to oh, do this first. Hold on, hold on I'll be right back. Oh, um, yeah, okay. You know, and you take care of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. that's how most of us live our lives. And I do too. On the other hand, what it's allowed me to understand is that when I look at someone's chart, I'm looking at the infinite possibilities of how these waveforms interact. And had I been an astrologer 50 or 100 years ago, I might have looked at a chart and said, you're like this and you're like that. I still pick up old astrology books and it says the native, which is the old way of saying the person who charted is, you know, the native with this exhibits this quality and does that. No, that's said with Newtonian determinism, and it doesn't exist. And so from that standpoint, as an astrologer and as a human being, I just don't have that same level of assumed closure on everything based upon my assumptions that I would have otherwise had. Uh, I, I, I love Bob Hope's um, last words before he died. This is very well documented. He was in a hospital um, and um, his wife and, and, and everyone knew that he was, you know, he was on his way out. And the evening that he died, his wife came to him and said, you know, Bob, um, we've never had this. And he was conscious and awake. Um, he said, she said, you know, Bob, we've, we've never had this, this discussion before, but I don't, I don't know what you want me to do with your body, you know, uh, after, after you die. I don't know whether, you know, if you want to be buried and where. Or I, I, we've never had this discussion. What do you want? And Bob Hope responded, 
surprise me. <laughs> That's my quantum philosophical, quantum astrological response. When I'm looking at a client's chart and I'm looking at it, I'm, I'm waiting to be surprised by how what I'm seeing on this piece of paper has turned into that person's entire life trajectory, stories, marriages, divorces, illnesses, um, uh, breakthroughs, innovations, um, children, parents. Oh, my God, the complexity of it all. I, I want to know everyone's story. Surprise me. Okay, so I am not going to attempt to summarize everything that <laughs> I you gotcha. said today. <laughs> I, I, I gotcha. But, but, First time ever. Yes, but what I will do is try to make sure that I understand on some level what you're, the, the basic of what you're Go saying. Go for it. Go for which it. Which is essentially, and, and I'm going to apply it to the astrology of it. Of so course. essentially our chart has both particles and waves. The particles are the planets, the actual things in the chart. And they, those are like the billiard balls, which there's totally predictive um, elements and behaviors to it. You can know exactly when they're going to line up, when they're going to do certain things. Exactly. Because, okay. So, cause there's mathematical laws governing those. And Newtonian, then Newtonian, Newtonian laws. There we go. And then we also have waves in our chart, in our lives. I'm going to just say chart. And the waves are the ripple effects that happen when these particles cross paths, they create the ripple effects that at some point meet which creates nodes, those nodes are like additional new points in time and space that have their own ripple effects. Yeah, well said. Okay, so those are um, potential. Those, the waves are, are where the potential is. So if, if the, let's say if the planets were fate, the nodes maybe could, could be the free will. Free element. will, but it's not so much the nodes being the free will, it's the movement of the planets that are generating the waves. The nodes in some ways are the condensation. I mean, mm -hmm. so, it, so the nodes are not. So it, it's the particle wave thing here is a little bit tricky to navigate, but it's a complex discussion. But what you're saying is absolutely true. The waves are the, the, the implied music of the spheres, you know, a Pythagorean and Keplerian concept. It's the hum of a chart. When I look at a chart, I'm not looking at 11 points or 10 points or however many points I'm mapping. I'm listening for the hum. What's the dance you dance? How do you, da how do you dance to your own hum? You know, there's the saying, we follow our own drummer, you know? Yeah. It's uh, the drummer is just drumming to the radio station that's picking up the music that they're playing. So the question is, you have this music, you have this hum. What are the steps you're going to do? How, what, 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 what are you going to learn? You could learn how to do this step or that step. This step will take you to the nearest cliff and have you jump off it. That step will take you to university, get you a PhD and, and, and whatever. I'm not saying, you know, you know, that's, no, that's better than the other, yeah. but, yeah. but, but the point is, is that, is that yes, when we, when we look at a chart, we get distracted by the particles because that's all we have. But, but we forget that, that when we're looking at a chart, what we're looking at really is 99.999% emptiness. The planet's, are like 0.0001% 
of whatever's in the chart. And so when I look at your chart, first thing I want to do is take out the sun. It's an illusion, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars. And what am I left with? I'll tell you what I'm left with. Namaste. I'm left with the emptiness in you is the exact same emptiness that's within me when you and I are not distracted by the illusion of our particles. Mm, that was so good. Oh my gosh. That is definitely going on a meme so, on Instagram. Uh, but yes, you okay, were right. So, the way I you mean, described it was right. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and essentially this whole idea of being distracted by particles in the chart, it, we're just, we're distracted by particles in each other. We're distracted, we're distracted by the scene. It's why, we had, it's why we take in form. It's why when we go off into the ethers after we drop bodies, it's why we come back because being distracted by particles is fun. It must be. We keep doing it. <laughs> it's also pain. It's also painful. Yeah. You know, but yeah. it has sensation. And yeah. so, but yes, yes. So Rick, one of my favorite things in your astrology foundations course is in module four, when you start to bring in the music. So at one point, you guys, he actually goes to the piano and starts to play chords and play what, what the aspects sound like. And it's so helpful to be thinking about this musically and what you just said about the chart. There's this hum, there's this dance, even this year, there's been this hum of Saturn, Pluto, and Jupiter in the background, inviting us into new territory. And no matter what's been happening in our personal lives, there's always this background hum that all of us have been sharing. Yeah. So. Yeah. And in fact, when I, when I look at a chart um, and when I teach, when I'm working with my apprentices and longer term students, I mean, the goal is to look at a chart and see if you can find the hum mm -hmm. because, because that's basically, we're all dancing to a very low frequency um, music. Music is simply vibrations that's within a very narrow band of frequencies. Music is, you know, basically, I don't know, maybe 80 or 90 cycles a second up to 10, 20, 30,000 cycles a second. If something's vibrating in that realm, we can hear its vibration because our eardrums resonate to that vibration, send signals to the brain and go, ah, I hear that. And if we hear it nicely, it's music. But if it's vibrating at much higher frequencies, like our computer vibrating at five or eight gigahertz, trillion cycles a second, we can't hear it. Or the planets vibrating at 13 cycles a year, we can't hear the moon vibrating that way, but, but, we, but we bleed to it. You know, we feel we feel that music and it's just a much slower moving music that we dance to. But it, it, it bypasses our ears. Rick, it, it, people say this in the chat a lot. Just when I thought it couldn't get better, it got better. That's uh -huh. how I feel today. This is definitely in my top three of episodes we've done. Thank you so much. You, you, say, that, you say that every week. Thank you. Though. No, I don't actually. <laughs> Every, every third week. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you so much for being here, for sharing all of this amazing wisdom. What is the award you, the award you won in with the Vedic astrologers and in the, the 30 minute Ted talk thing, what was the award that you won? Um, the international astrologer of the year award. Yeah. Well, it's clear why.
Thank yeah, you. There's, there's a very strange clip somewhere. I mean, that whole talk, by the way, is online. You can Google it. It's on YouTube. It's not on my YouTube, but it is there. Um, but it but it was very strange because at the giving of the, the uh, award, I didn't even know there were awards. <laughs> we were all decked out that day in formal Indian garb. And I was called up in front of this very large auditorium with this music being played by sitar that sounded like a bad version of Pomp and Circumstance. And they had this maybe 40 or 50 foot um, uh, screen, which had the video of me walking on stage and a receiving. The whole thing was so weird. It wow. was like, oh, my God. And it's it on like, film. We could see this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, they're they're both on film. There's um, the the talk is on film, but the award that was given was several days later. But I think I have a clip on my Instagram somewhere buried from a couple of years ago. Awesome. Well, for those of you who have not joined us for Astrology Foundations yet, you can learn from Rick yourself how to start to decipher that hum in your chart. And if you like to look at other people's charts, their charts too. So that is still available to you. You can go to astrologyhub.com slash foundations. Again, that's astrologyhub.com slash foundations. And just a shout out to all of your students. Thank you so much for being in the class and for being here every week too. What, it's a, so great. what a journey. What yeah, a journey has been for me, for sure. Yeah, yes. And um, one more thing. We just opened up registration for the 2021 forecast panel event that's going to happen in December, featuring 13 different astrologers and giving their uh, forecast for the year which hopefully is going to include both particles and waves, right? <laughs> Not deterministic. There's potential. Um, so we'll be doing that. Uh, you can sign up now. It's astrologyhub.com I mean, astrologyhub slash 2021. It's entirely free. That is available to you and open for registration now. Astrologyhub.com slash 2021. Do you want to send them anywhere? No, uh, always by Instagram. It's there every day. You know, Instagram, uh, Rick Levine Astrologer, also on Facebook, Rick Levine Astrologer. You can find me. I'm around. Awesome. All right. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you for being a part of our community. And thank you, as always, for making astrology a part of your life. We'll catch you on the next episode. Hey, astrology lovers. It's that time of year. We're getting ready for our sixth annual free forecast event featuring a panel of 13 top astrologers and focusing on what's coming our way in 2021. You'll get answers to key questions like, what are the big themes of 2021? How can you proactively work with the key transits coming next year? What's the grand conjunction and why have astrologers been talking about it for ages? And the question that's on everybody's mind, is it over yet? Join me and these 13 amazing astrologers for this free, dynamic, and informative event December 10th and 11th and get the information you need to ride the waves of 2021 with grace. Go to astrologyhub.com slash 2021. Again, that's astrologyhub.com slash 2021. Can't wait to see you on the inside.